Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Adarsh Bimraj with the Cleveland Clinic and HIVMA Chair Dr. Raj Gandhi with Harvard University about COVID-19 treatments. Thank you both for joining us today. Doctors Bimraj and Gandhi, you've both been frequent guests on this podcast, so I'd like to welcome you back and begin by asking you both for your perspective on the current state of the pandemic. Cases are now going up across the country, though case rates are quite inconsistent from state to state, with some areas seeing surges that we haven't seen in months, causing overcrowding in ICUs once again. To what do you attribute these surges? Part of the surge is the Delta variant. There's no doubt now that it's a more contagious variant. Estimates are at least twice as contagious as older lineages of of SARS-CoV-2. And there are also recent data that the virus levels um, in people who have Delta are higher, maybe up to a thousandfold higher than, than some of the other variants. So I do think the Delta variant is one of the reasons behind the surges. The decrease in social distancing and masking around the country is also uh, in part uh, behind some of the surges. And then last, but certainly not least, in fact, perhaps most importantly, the the pockets of unvaccinated individuals. Those pockets of unvaccinated individuals around the country are essentially serving to multiply and spread the infection. So we can't change Delta. Uh, We can't change its transmissibility, but we can change human behavior and really uh, double down on, on promoting vaccinations. This is Adash Pemraj. I agree with Dr. Gandhi. Again, the way we are framing the problem is the race between the variants and as well the vaccinations. Clearly, as we have seen throughout the world, the Delta variant is more transmissible and we are seeing that it is becoming the more dominant strain in wherever it has been introduced. Vaccinations, again, slightly less effective, but they're predominantly they're still effective. And the best data which looked at it uh, with them are any vaccines, you can have almost a 90 percent uh, I mean, efficacy up to 90 percent, even with the Delta variant. So I think that is an arrow in the quiver that we have that we have to maximize and utilize. There's still communities throughout the U.S. where vaccination rates are suboptimal. That will be a solution, at least in stemming uh, the rise of the Delta variant. Having said that, at least anecdotally, we are seeing some breakthrough cases. Even if it's 90% effective, again, 10 out of 100 can probably get the infection. Increase it by, even though the probability or the fraction is small, if it affects a large number of people, we'll see a lot of people. What are the implications of that? I think we should also be active in surveillance, especially genomic surveillance, as we ramp up our vaccination efforts and trying to convince, because uh, is there anything unique about these breakthrough cases? I think being more proactive and trying to understand the phenomena of, of the breakthrough cases, I think will also be important in stemming the future pandemic once our vaccination rates uh, increase. Dr. Bimraj, how has vaccination impacted COVID-19 treatments? And can you also talk about the impact of the Delta variant on the effectiveness of the current treatments? As we know, as vaccinations go up in any community, not only the number, the percentage of people who are infected is coming down, but also the severity. It's not just how many patients are infected, number of people who are getting hospitalized, and uh, number of people are critically ill in the ICU. So 
indirectly, as I said, because of the vaccinations, because of the cases, especially the ones which are severe or critical are going down, I think our use of therapies have gone down. In terms of vaccines having a direct effect on treatments, I think that's very little. Theoretically, I can speculate that once infections are controlled, I think your probability that you'll have new mutants that can become resistant to uh, treatments, I think are gonna be much, much less. So having said that, if you look at all treatments, you can classify them into two buckets, right? The first bucket is the ones which directly have activity on the virus. And the second one is those which have activities on uh, your immune system, uh, especially because we know you have an aberrant immune response to the virus, which actually makes you sick, especially the ones who are critically ill vaccinations or the rate of mutations, which is going to go down, I think will certainly impact monoclonal antibodies because they are targeting the spike protein. Theoretically, you can say the effect of vaccinations, or I think will be more useful in treatments that are targeting the spike proteins, especially passive immunities antibodies. Uh, so far, we haven't seen any kind of resistance to remdesivir and other antivirals. Uh, and again, we have not been studying it that closely, but no, we're not aware of that. None of these, again, we should affect the treatments that target the patient's immune uh, system. The effect of vaccinations and treatments, I think, if I can speculate, I think will be that. In terms of the Delta variants and the effectiveness in the current treatment, I think we have very little clinical data, but based on lab experiments, maybe the Delta variant might have a lesser susceptibility to some of the monoclonal antibodies, especially bamlevimab and the combination of bamlevimab and adesivimab. But if you look at the other agents, like the combination of casadimumab, imdevimab, or the newer antibody, which is uh, sotrovimab, I don't think there's even in vitro data, which actually shows that the activity will be significantly impacted by the Delta variant. The rest of the treatments, I think, so far have not been affected by the Delta variant because these agents are being extensively used, not just in the U.S., but also in India during the time when they surged. And at least anecdotes, there have not been any uh, significant failures with these treatments with the, the Delta variant. The Delta variant probably is quite a bit less susceptible laboratory-wise to bamlanivimab. As to whether bamlanivimab with its partner, etisevimab, that, that might be okay against Delta, but a more important point for the moment, at least, is that in the United States, because of other variants, the beta variant, which is also known as B1351, and the so-called gamma variant, which is also known as P1, bamlanivimab, etisevimab is no longer being distributed in the U.S. because those other variants, not Delta, and laboratory studies have marked reductions in susceptibility to bamlanivimab, atisevimab. The other ones, though, that Dr. Bimraj highlighted, casrivimab, imdevimab, citrovimab, they, they should be active not only against Delta, but against other variants. One drug that we might talk about a bit later, that there's some preliminary word might have some effectiveness, is molnupiravir. This is another blocker of viral replication that isn't affected by a spike protein. It's not looking at viral entry. It's looking at replication of the genetic material. I would think that should be active against Delta. And a lot of us are really interested to see where that ends up. Some data out of India, but it's all in press release form. So something to keep your eye on. 
IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week 2021 with Chasing the Sun, COVID-19 Beyond the Horizon. This global event begins Wednesday, September 29 at 10 a.m. Eastern. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost of attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at idweek.org. You both spoke during a past episode of this podcast about the pandemic in India, particularly the need for resources, but also the use of unproven therapies. Are better treatments reaching patients in India today? Dr. Gandhi, let's turn to you first. It's been a harrowing time around the world, uh, and certainly the last months in India have been particularly difficult. Thankfully, the case numbers as of recent weeks are, are going down. We've talked on prior occasions about the importance of avoiding unproven and potentially harmful therapies. What has happened in the US, but also more recently in India, makes it clear what the consequences can be of using unproven therapies. The example I wanna give is there are complicated reasons as as to why there was a horrific rise in in the so-called black fungus or mucormycosis in India. But I believe, and I think there's evidence that one of the contributors was really the unbridled and inappropriate use of steroids at times uh, and, and, and at some parts of the response. And I think three mistakes were made in terms of that use of steroids. One was steroids there and also here have sometimes been used at stages when it is not beneficial before people are on oxygen. And I'm personally aware of that happening. Corticosteroids were also used at doses that were much higher than our standard. Let's remember that the studies that showed steroids saved lives used a very particular dose of dexamethasone, six milligrams per day. You can extrapolate to other steroids, but one shouldn't go beyond the dose used that has benefit. And then finally, steroids were used for longer than has been shown to be beneficial. In the studies that showed benefit, it was 10 days of steroids, not longer, or until hospital discharge, whichever came first. So if someone was in the hospital for 21 days, at day 10, they should stop the steroids. At least that's the evidence we have. And I think using unproven therapies can lead to devastating consequences for patients. And so the lesson I I draw is that desperate times call not for desperate measures, but rather to well thought out and evidence-based measures. That has been the lesson of HIV. That is the lesson of the first COVID wave in the United States. And then the last lesson I think is we absolutely need to strengthen healthcare systems here in the United States, but also around the world. And we urgently, urgently need to accelerate vaccine efforts. That's what I draw from the lessons um, from the recent search in India. And the good news is I was speaking with friends and family last week as the surge in India has plateaued. Uh, and again, uh, hopefully it'll start going down. There are a few pockets here and there. I think some in Maharashtra and some in Kerala where again, there's a lot of speculation of the Delta Plus. Uh, we really don't know whether it is because of that or whether that the extra mutation um, on the Delta has any significant contributions. That said, overall numbers have significantly gone down. I think partly that is because of all the infection prevention and policy, but also vaccination efforts. There's a long way to go, but they're doing a good job. My conversations is the number of patients who are sick enough to be admitted in the hospital has gone down in India. If you remember, I think there were no oxygen supplies, even as an outpatient. Most hospitals say, oh, well, I mean, that's not the situation. Hardly any of the patients uh, who are developing COVID-19, at least in most parts of India, are sick enough that they can't be taken care of as an outpatient. Having said that, I think still the use of unproven therapies is going on. Again, especially the use of steroids and really patients who are not that sick as an outpatient. 
like Dr. Gandhi said, doesn't matter what part of the world you are, the evidence is the evidence. We have randomized control data to show which uh, therapies are effective and a lot of therapies which are not effective, especially in mild cases where most of the patients improve by themselves. I can't emphasize the importance of sticking with the evidence and not just saying, oh, just because this is an emergency, we should try unproven therapies. And I'm hoping and praying that the trend goes down in India. There's some speculation there might be a third wave, uh, but so far the data is not pointing that way. And I'm hoping people continue to get vaccinated and the trend keeps going down. And also more appropriate therapies are used. Again, guideline or evidence-based therapies are supported and not uh, unproven therapies. Over the past year and a half, we've been reminded that this is a novel virus, One of the many areas we're still learning about is what's been called long COVID or post-COVID. Dr. Bimraj, what can you tell us about what you've learned in terms of identifying and treating patients with lingering symptoms? Amanda, that's a great question. I think it is still an area of debate as to what is the right word to use for the patients who are having symptoms after they've recovered from COVID-19. And I'm guessing, I think, at least if you look at CDC, the consensus of somebody has COVID for the first four weeks, we are calling it acute COVID. Uh, and again, after that, we are calling it post-COVID. And again, long COVID is, the, even though a more popular term, we're going with post-COVID. The reasons why somebody could have persistent symptoms after COVID could be multifactorial, right? Again, the buckets that it falls into is a lot of patients have fatigue, and non-specific symptoms or certain psychological symptoms. And then we have patients who have predominantly lung symptoms to the point their oxygen might still be low, or you do any studies that you can find some damage in the lung, which is still lingering. And you have some patients where the heart is uh, or cardiovascular system is involved. Some patients have developed clots. I think it's really important to distinguish and separate as to what is driving the symptoms after covid It's because of the clots, is it because of the heart, is it because of the lung, is it because of the brain or psychological, and then refer them to that specialist or sometimes a combination of specialists. At my institution at Cleveland Clinic, and I'm sure at Dr. Gandhi's institution, multiple, we have these multidisciplinary, what we call as recover clinics, where initially an internist evaluate these patients and then plugs them into multiple specialists. And often it is not just a medical specialist. Like if you have a predominantly heart problem, you're managed by a cardiologist or the appropriate tests are done. But also we have a psychologist and neuropsychologist and we also have rehab people like occupational rehab and physical medicine rehab. And it's a multidisciplinary. You don't have the infection anymore. A lot of the times we are dealing with the sequelae consequences. Most institutions are getting better and better with creating this multidisciplinary teams to help COVID-19 patients recover and get better. Not only do we need such multidisciplinary clinics and specialists collaborating with each other, but what's also important is putting uh, more resources into studying these patients. Across institutions, I think we have to collaborate. We have to standardize the definitions of each of these uh, terms and then see, okay, what are the best practices to manage these patients? We know too little about post-COVID or or long COVID to to really design the best treatments. I think the multidisciplinary approach that was outlined is is the right way to go. I think we also need a better understanding as to the cause. And the cause, as was alluded to, is almost certainly multifactorial. But let's remember for a moment that even before COVID, other viral syndromes like Ebola, chikungunya, we saw post-viral syndrome symptoms persisting at times for for a long time. And, And so this is 
although it's prominent with COVID because of the extent of COVID, you know, how many millions of people have gotten COVID, it's not unique to COVID to have post-viral symptoms. But I would really like to understand, and I think what the field really needs to understand is what is the, the cause of these symptoms? We know post-hospitalization, post-acute respiratory distress syndrome, even before COVID, some people would have persistent symptoms. That's probably not the whole explanation for COVID because we know even people who are never hospitalized with COVID can have these persistent symptoms. But the pathogenesis, is it inflammation, hyperinflammation? We know during the midst of COVID, acute COVID, there's often a hyperexuberant inflammatory response. Does that persist over time? And is that why these symptoms are happening? There are some data recently from in preprint form from UC San Francisco suggesting that and from other groups as well, but something we really need to nail down. Is it inflammation? And if so, maybe anti-inflammatories would have an effect. We don't know that, but understanding why people have the symptoms will inform trials of treatments. Is it autoimmunity? People have postulated that as well. Is it viral persistence? In most acute viral respiratory infections, the virus um, doesn't persist for very long, but is that the same with SARS-CoV-2? We need to know more. And then depending on which of those three, hyperinflammation, autoimmunity, viral persistence, or something I haven't mentioned, depending on the cause, then treatments will differ. I think a lot more to come. I'm glad that resources are, are going to go in this direction. One thing I would love to know is, do the treatments we give during acute COVID, monoclonal antibodies, dexamethasone, remdesivir, do they reduce the frequency of long COVID? And ironically, we actually don't know that yet. We know what these treatments do in the first 28 days, but we don't know much about what happens in someone who's gotten treatment for acute COVID in terms of long COVID, and we really need to know the answer to that. Dr. Gandhi, I think you began to hint at this next topic earlier. What is on the horizon for COVID-19 treatments, and what are you most hopeful about in terms of improving care for patients with COVID-19? The lesson of the last year and four months has been that treatments change rapidly and evolve and advance, and I think that's still true today. I like the way that Dr. Bimraj bucketed our treatments, antivirals and anti-inflammatories. I think that's a good conceptual framework. I'll talk about some of the new treatments in those two buckets. For outpatients, people with mild to moderate disease, that's when viral replication is most active, we believe. And therefore, I think that's where the antivirals are, are most important to prevent progression and prevent hospitalization. Of those 85, 90% of people with COVID who never get hospitalized, can we increase that to 95 or close to 100% with an antiviral? We don't know, but we need a good antiviral. Some of the good antivirals, or some of the antivirals, I should say, that are under study are ones that target viral replication. One of the ones to keep your eye on is molnupiravir. That's a works by a mechanism that induces mutations in the virus so that it can't replicate. There's a phase three study going on with molnupiravir in the United States. For early treatment, there's reports, press releases out of India with a positive effect, but the details still are lacking in terms of knowing what that is, but something to watch. Other groups and other companies around the world are developing viral replication inhibitors. Another very critical part of viral replication is what's called the viral protease. Protease inhibitors revolutionized HIV treatment. There's a viral protease inhibitor that is under development and I think is an example of something to keep your eye on. And then lastly, there are host proteins, cellular proteins that the virus needs to get into the cell. And there's drugs like Camistat, which has been studied and will get results soon that is looking at blocking viral entry. So those are examples of antivirals that are on the horizon and, and something to watch. The key thing with these antivirals ideally is to develop an oral version as something that people can take by mouth like oseltamivir 
to prevent them from getting sick. For inpatients, which is where we spent a lot of the last year in terms of taking care of very, very sick people, thankfully fewer now than, than in the past, there the focus is on anti-inflammatories as, as Dr. Bimraj mentioned. We talked a little bit about dexamethasone. Dexamethasone is clearly the bedrock of anti-inflammatories, but the IDSA treatment guidelines panel has also outlined roles for augmented um, immunomodulation, that is adding something to dexamethasone. And there the examples are a tocilizumab and interleukin-6 inhibitor, or uh, a JAK inhibitor, um, a Janus kinase inhibitor. These are drugs that tamp down inflammation. And I think there are roles for IL-6 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors in combination with dexamethasone for select patients who are in the hospital, people who are very, very ill. One thing we didn't talk about as a bucket is anticoagulation. Um, from the very beginning of COVID, we've realized that people with COVID um, have higher rates of blood clots, particularly those who are very, very sick. Unfortunately, other than the consensus around prophylaxis dose anticoagulation, every hospitalized patient should be on prophylactic dose anticoagulation. We don't have a consensus yet on therapeutic doses of anticoagulation. There are some studies coming that might teach us whether people who are moderately ill, not yet critically ill, whether they benefit from therapeutic doses. There are uh, preprints or press releases about that, but we need to see the data. And then for critically ill patients, there are press releases suggesting that anticoagulation at that point is too late. That window of opportunity for anticoagulation, therapeutic anticoagulation has to be defined. And it's something that we as a field are watching. And then I also uh, already mentioned, how do these acute treatments affect long COVID? Uh, a question that really needs to be answered. My last two points, we need drugs here in the United States, but we also need cheap and effective drugs that can be used around the world. We touched on a little bit of what happened in India, what's happening in Indonesia. These are things that really cry out for a coordinated global response. And we'll only get there if we get cheap and effective oral drugs. And we can't rest until we get cheap and effective oral drugs. The treatments to date have made advances, but they're not good enough. And like with HIV, we didn't have good drugs until we got to a certain tipping point, and we're not there yet with COVID. We don't have the treatments that we need, uh, and we need to keep on working until we have them. If you go back and look at the case fatality ratio from January of 2021 to now, or even before, it's been hovering around 1.72% in the U.S., we like to believe that we are doing a great job with all the advancement, but again, why hasn't that number changed that much? So I think there's still room for, for therapies. Once somebody has fallen sick to decrease mortality or in terms of decreasing the criticalness, I think there's still room. And like Dr. Gandhi said, I think there are a lot of new agents. Some of the new agents are targeting the virus, they're protease inhibitors. It's not only looking at individual newer agents, but even combinations of maybe you can use both polymerase inhibitor along with the protease inhibitor and see what happens early on in the disease. For mild to moderate, I think that is important. But for the severe patients, especially the critically ill patients, we are using a cocktail of anti-inflammatory agents. In addition to steroids, which is the bedrock, we are using tocilizumab, we are using baricitinib. But the fundamental question we're not able to answer is which particular patient will benefit from which combinations and at what phase. We've been using precision tools as blunt instruments. So the next generation of trials that are designed for COVID-19 treatments, I think probably should look at, is there a particular what we call a phenotype? Is 
some blood test or clinical presentation that will respond to a particular combination or especially say if the patient does not respond to steroids in the first 24 hours, then do we add one agent to the other agent? I think trials should be designed to target these particular special phenotypes or patients who are not responding to therapies. And maybe that's one way we can actually change that case fatality ratio, which hasn't budgeted in the last uh, six months uh, with COVID-19 treatments. Then even their newer immunomodulatory agents like GMCSF, and I think we should continue it, but also looking at, okay, what we exist in what combinations and what times and what kind of patient we use, I think that is critically needed research. Dr. Bimraj at the beginning talked about breakthrough infections. We're seeing in, in pockets in Massachusetts and, and around the country, these breakthrough infections. Knowing how to treat those individuals is not yet clear. Thankfully, the vast majority of them have mild symptoms or moderate symptoms and don't end up in the hospital. But in terms of can we interrupt transmission um, to household contacts, all of these things still are unanswered questions. And, and treatment and vaccination kind of go hand in hand. When you have tens of hundreds of millions of people vaccinated, when you have breakthroughs, how do you treat people and how do you prevent onward transmission? And will we ever have a prophylactic drug? Do we have a drug that someone can take uh, if they're exposed to prevent them from getting sick if, if vaccines haven't been able to do that? Looking at chemoprophylaxis, right? Again, we are looking at vaccines and we are banking on the vaccines. But again, vaccines takes 14 days to kick in. It takes time. What if there are these breakthrough infections for preventing transmission? If maybe any of the antiviral agents can be used as chemoprophylaxis, I think that'll be a very uh, important tool in our armamentarium. And I agree with Dr. Gandhi. I think we need more studies with antiviral agents and similar agents for chemoprophylaxis. Well, I think it's quite likely we'll be inviting you both back sometime again soon. There's still quite a lot to learn and discuss. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Bimraj and Gandhi for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.